Welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast focused on Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Be a better Bitcoiner by learning more about the economics and technology of Bitcoin. Today for episode 79, my guest is Misir Mamadov. He's quite prolific on Twitter and has a great ability to articulate Bitcoin from an Austrian economics context. He's also done a great prior podcast appearance on Marty Bent's show, Tales from the Crypt. Also, his older brother Murad was one of the first guests on my show, SLP8. In this interview, we talk about Bitcoin, how to learn about it, inequality, Bitcoin and morals, and more. But before that, a few words for my podcast sponsors. So first, Kraken, one of the largest and most secure exchanges in the world. Over my years in Bitcoin, I've been impressed with the way Kraken operate in terms of offering strong security and acting ethically in the space under Jesse Powell's principled leadership. They're one of the longest standing Bitcoin exchanges. They're consistently rated the best with a high quality platform. They offer some of the best liquidity in the industry. They've got high trading volume and low fees with no minimum or hidden fees. Kraken have 24-7 support. I found it extremely fast to go through the sign-up process as an individual. And then on the institutional and business solution side, they're also quite popular with institutions, funds, asset managers, trading firms, crypto and Bitcoin businesses. They offer the highest available API rate limits, and there's a Kraken OTC desk. Kraken also offer margin and futures trading. So to learn more and sign up, go to the Kraken link in the show notes. Next up, Unchained Capital. Have you looked into Unchained Capital? They're a Bitcoin financial services company offering a really cool two of three keys multi-signature vault product. You can use Trezor or Ledger wallets and you still maintain control with your two keys and reduce the single point of failure risk. Multi-signature helps protect you against the proverbial $5 wrench attack as you can distribute your keys. I've set up a vault with Unchained and I found it super simple and easy. Customers who create an Unchained vault also get three free months of access to Safety and Immerse's Bitcoin Standard Research Bulletin, which is a fantastic resource for my listeners interested in Austrian economics. Unchained also offers Bitcoin collateralized loans, allowing you to get USD liquidity without selling your Bitcoins, meaning you don't trigger a capital gains event. You have to consider your own scenario, but this can be tax efficient for a hodler, enabling them to continue their hodling rather than selling Bitcoins. While a loan is outstanding, your Bitcoin is stored in a dedicated multi-sig address under collaborative custody with Unchained. They would hold one of the keys, you hold a second, and Unchained's independent third-party key agent would hold the third key. So to learn more and sign up, go to unchained-capital.com. On to the interview. Monsieur, welcome to the show, mate. I have, uh, you know, it's been a pleasure to chat with you here and there, and uh, you're very prolific on Twitter. Hey, Stefan, it's a great honor to be here, uh, and I'm a huge fan of your podcast. I think you're doing a great job and uh, i hope that you continue doing this well thank you yeah look i i think um the listeners might not know this but i just wanted to say thank you very much you were actually my first patreon supporter so thank you very much for uh being the first no i think i think people if they if they have the chance and if they are a listener they should definitely consider uh consider that because it's definitely worth what that small amount of money compared relative to the value that you provide to the space oh well thank you very much yeah look i think I think you've got a really great story as well. Like you've, you're quite young and you've got this really strong interest and knowledge around Austrian economics. And I think the listeners would love to hear more about how you came to learn about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. So tell us a little bit about that story. Yeah, absolutely. So in university, I studied financial economics, but unfortunately, this experience was pretty much devoid of any Austrian theory. And I feel like it's very unfortunate 
that not only do universities solely teach like Keynesian status quo economics, but also teach it in a way where this approach is not even questioned in any way. And the concepts like fractional reserve banking are just taken for granted as if that's the only way it can be. So unless you do your own research and learning outside of class, it is unlikely that you will come to appreciate Austrian economics today. I think that's the reality. And unlike a lot of people, like frankly, I was not a gold bug. I did appreciate a lot of like libertarian thinkers, but did not really get a strong hold of sound money back back in the day until diving into the Bitcoin Bitcoin rabbit hole. Yeah. And with regards to where I learned Austrian economics, it was pretty much it was it was because of because of Bitcoin. And uh, I think I had been rather uh, eclectic about learning uh, Austrian econ. And I feel that it is very difficult to truly grasp the value proposition of Bitcoin without ending up identifying as an Austrian, identifying with the Austrian school of economics. Uh, and uh, because like strictly limited supply of Bitcoins, somewhat akin to that of gold, is perhaps the single most important property. And yeah, uh, I was thinking that I could uh, just to talk about some of the resources that I've used to approach uh, both Bitcoin and Austrian economics. I think those kind of complement each other as you dig deeper into the rabbit hole. Excellent. Let's do that. So I think the best way to go about this is to kind of build up uh, your way to more uh, demanding works. So I don't think it's the most optimal way to dive into uh, human action per se, even though it's a great book. But like if you just give it to the, the a newbie, it's probably not going to be uh, very effective. I feel like today, the most engaging and motivating way to learn about Austrian economics is through the prism of Bitcoin. And frankly, I think that Bitcoin is the most promising and effective implementation of the, this, this, this discipline in the modern world. I'm not urging anyone to totally drop gold just yet, <laughs> but considering the many advantages that Bitcoin has over it, I think it's definitely worth everybody's time to look into it. So, yeah, provided what I just uh, said, I think it's a good start to uh, maybe, yeah, for sure, read Safe's book, The Bitcoin Standard. I think I think it gives a really good overview of the history of some of Austrian concepts like time preference, etc., and also gives you a peek into what Bitcoin is all about. Uh, and maybe also watching some videos of uh, Andreas Antonopoulos because like like we have to be honest like we live in in the modern world people they have such high time preference that they cannot be bothered to sit down and read a 300 page book so at least until they realize that this is something really huge which it is I believe I mean Bitcoin and Austrian Econ so I think uh, watching some of his videos would, would definitely be a good start and then with with regards to actual uh, Austrian literature I think a pretty good start would be uh, some work by George Guido Holzman, who I believe was a guest on your podcast. I, I really appreciate his work. Yep, episode yeah, yeah. 51. Everyone should listen listen to that one. Ethics of Money Production it is very, uh, very succinct, very to the point, and I think it's accessible to most readers without any any considerable amount of like knowledge about economics or anything like that. I think it's it's a very great book. Also, one book that helped me out a lot uh, is A Theory of Money and Credit by Mises. Uh, it's probably the other book that I would recommend. It's not that hard, but 
a little bit uh, more dense, however, still pretty accessible. Mises.org uh, is a website by Mises Institute. It's a great resource with a huge amount of uh, free books on the on the topic. And I think the equivalent in the Bitcoin world would be uh, the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute by our friends Pierre Rochard and Bitstein. Very, very, uh, a very valuable resource. Everyone should listen to it. I think some people, and myself included, they really enjoy listening to podcasts or like watching videos. And of course, one of the podcasts that helped helped me out a lot was yours, as well as your videos on YouTube, the, especially the early ones. They give a very, very good uh, introduction and even maybe an intermediate level understanding of Bitcoin and Austrian econ. Well, thank you. Also, I, another podcast I, re- I really like is one by Jeff Deist, who I believe was also a guest on, on this podcast and his podcast called The Human Action Podcast. Really, really fun listen. And yeah, I think, I think those are, that's a good amount of resources that anyone interest, even mildly interested in a topic should pursue. And yeah, I think that's a good way to go about it. I like that because it's difficult for somebody to just give them human action. Obviously, uh, we typically don't recommend that for newbies. Typically, the newbie books that we would recommend are things like Economics in One Lesson and so on. But for a a Bitcoin person, yeah, you're right. I think they need sometimes some videos of very motivational, inspirational speakers. And that's why Andreas makes a lot of sense. And what about now on the, the Bitcoin side? Would you say it's mostly things like the Nakamoto Institute and that was where you kind of learned most of that and was it mostly just podcasts? Yeah, no, I think I'm, I'm, I'm quite a... I'm a person who likes to listen and watch a lot. So I, I, did, I did the whole Andreas's videos, then uh, all the different podcasts, Marty's podcast, Tales from the Crypt, another great listen. Uh, but I think every single one of these podcasts is different in the sense that some of them are more uh, succinct. Like yours is, it's never more than an hour, but it's always to the point. And if you want the information, and if you don't have that much time, but you want to get the, the most important stuff, that's very good. If you want more of a relaxed, uh, but more like uh, a different atmosphere, there are other ones. But yeah, no, I think what Pierre and Bitstein are doing is also great. They are, they have been great ambassadors to Bitcoin and Twitter. Twitter is definitely another resource that I think is kind of necessary if you are going to be interested in Bitcoin and Austrian econ today because all of these people are there and they are very much accessible. You can message them and I bet that most of them, most of the time they're going to reply because they are not here. They're here to spread this message and do the best thing for the world. Excellent. Actually, one other question that just came to me now as well is there are some people within Bitcoin who don't consider themselves Austrians. So a quick example might be someone like Nick Carter. Do you have any thoughts on um, some of these other schools of thought within Bitcoin? Frankly, I haven't given this topic too much thought. So I don't know. I, I kind of feel like it's impossible to really appreciate Bitcoin and not, not ending up at least appreciating Austrian economics because it is so neglected in the modern world. And is the fact that it is neglected is perhaps uh, manifested in the different, um, the different uh, not so optimal ways that the economy has been um, playing, around, playing out in the, in the last 30, 40 years. And I think that even if you don't identify as an Austrian, you should definitely 
consider reading the major works by by the by the authors of Excellent. the school. So look, let's now talk about some of the work you've recently been doing. I know you recently wrote a thesis around the gold window closing and the impacts on inequality. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that one of the only opportunities that I had to learn about Austrian econ uh, in college was writing my senior thesis. And the topic that I chose was how did Nixon's cancellation of the convertibility of the US dollar to gold affect the wealth inequality in the United States. And basically, just a little intro, like despite the fact that the US economy has seen steady positive real GDP growth over the last 50 years, the wealth inequality has only been rising since the 1970s. And as we all know, the, the, that is around the same time when, the, when Nixon dropped the gold standard. And for example, in 1971, the wealth share of the bottom 50% was around 3%. And by 2016, it is only 1.2%. And in the same time, the wealth of the share of the top 10% grew from 70% to like 78%. And there, there's a lot of numbers here because this was an empirical uh, empirical uh, thesis. But I think it really shows uh, all the things that we talk about, all, all of these theories that we always discuss in actual, uh, in actual uh, data and actual real-world terms. So I think that it's important to say that closing the gold window had a series of long-term implications and domino effects on the function of the U.S. economy. And the most significant result of the cancellation was the removal of natural limits on credit expansion. A gold standard basically acted as a limit force on the amount of credit that was created. And the resultant uh, increase in the supply of money has enabled various things that is such, such as surge in levels of debt, uh, decreased private saving rates, reinforced the, gro- the growth of the stock market, which, wh- whose, which and the stocks are mostly owned by the wealth, wealthier uh, part of the population. And I think it also accelerated the purchasing power of the dollar, of course. So the hypothesis of my uh, thesis posited that the increase in the amount of total credit market debt result, resulting from the cancellation has enabled a widening uh, of the wealth inequality in the U.S. And uh, the results were quite staggering. Unfortunately, I cannot share this uh, thesis in public just yet because of the university policies and whatnot. But I am really glad that I have the chance to be on on this platform to show some of these results. Uh, And, for example, the way I uh, went about this essay is by... Uh, this thesis is by uh, approaching it from three uh, by analyzing three different wealth groups: the bottom ninety percent, the top one percent, and the top zero point zero one percent. So, yeah, uh, as we already said, nineteen seventies closed Nixon closed the gold window, and what's interesting is that by the end of nineteen seventies, we see that the wealth share of the bottom ninety percent is has started to decrease since un, up until today. And the wealth of the top 1%, and more importantly, the wealth of the top 0.01%, so like the ultra-wealthy, has been increasing at even a higher rate. And like the R-squared values for like, if you run the quadratic regressions for this, are insanely high. They're like in the 90, like 95% or something around like that, for example, for the top 0.01%. So like these correlations are very strong. And... As I already said, like the, the variable that correlated the most with wealth inequality was total credit market debt. And uh, the relationship 
frankly speaking, the relationship for the bottom 90% wasn't as strong as the other ones, but I think it makes sense because the ultra-rich are usually the ones who benefit the most from uh, these policies of credit expansion. And what's also interesting, I think, another thing to point out is the fact that basically the rise of the wealth of the top 10% is to a great extent due to the rise of the wealth of 1%, and that is in turn due to the rise in the wealth of the 0.01%. So it's literally the ultra-wealthy that are benefiting the most and bringing to get with them the other top 10. For example, like there's another great paper by Suez and Zuckman that delves into this, and it shows that the rate at which the wealth of the top 0.01% has been increasing since 1980s is much faster, it's literally the fastest, uh, than any other wealth group that make up the 1%, like the top 1 to 0.05 or top 0.1 to... So basically, I mean, you get the idea. And I think another thing that's also that I took out from this, from working on this uh, research paper was the fact that credit expansion really uh, creates this flow uh, of value into the stock market. And I think credit expansion is often cited in many different uh, works as uh, one of the major causes of rising prices, uh, of rising prices in the stock market. As the newly extended credit is often provided to corporations that buy their own stocks and etc etc like even in human action i think mises uh, talks about this and he argues that credit expansion enables a reduced market interest rate that increases the profits and the prices of the stock market uh yeah and lastly i think that it's important to say that like the gini coefficient And the stock prices, they show a very strong positive correlation, which kind of just says that, like, people, the the more prices, the more stock prices increase, the the more wealth inequality there is. Because, like, the the bottom 90%, they don't own that many stocks. I believe they own only 7% of the stock market, which is the reality of things and they don't so they have to basically rely on their salaries and they don't uh, uh, enjoy any of the profits that are made by the stock market uh, rises uh, by the rising stock market prices and i think that basically the final research of my uh, the final result of my research showed that the wealth share of the top one and especially of the top 0.01 percent had a very strong positive relationship with the total credit market debt uh, when adjusting for time. And that, that says a lot because all of this is only possible in the, mo- in the world that we live in today. Like this is not going to be possible in, in the world where Bitcoin is the money that we all use. So I think that's something to think about for sure. And that was a little long, but yeah. no, that's fantastic. I think so. I'm with you there. Like, I think we definitely do see much more credit expansion, and that has driven winners and losers in this overarching kind of game of life, if you will. The people who first have that credit, or in the Austrian parlance, those closest to the monetary spigot receive the new money and can benefit from that to the disadvantage of 
latecomers or people who receive that money later. But yeah. it might be also the interesting. Effect, right? Yeah, exactly. The Cantillon effect. And it might just be interesting to explore whether there are any potentially benign explanations for this and why they are accurate or inaccurate. So a quick example might be, well, the world's population is expanding. We have better technology. Uh, the influence of one major CEO, for example, is is rightfully much greater. They can actually influence the production for many, many more. They, you know, big multinationals, they might be commanding an even larger workforce. So I guess these are a couple ideas that I'm curious. Uh, do you have any thoughts on whether or another example might be demographics? So around sometimes some of these statistics are difficult because there are other demographic factors changing. For example, the family size. So family size numbers might change. That's a quick example. Um, but yeah, do you have any thoughts on that or on whether there are benign explanations for this? Well, yeah, I mean, of course, this is not, uh, we are unable to control for every variable to like prove that there's causation or anything like that. Uh, I think that there should be more research done into this. Like this is a very, very, neglected topic like obviously before writing the thesis i had to do some research and to be honest there aren't that many papers or works that are written about wealth inequality and how that relates to the monetary policies uh, that are uh, that are enacted in within our economy today so i think it really deserves more attention and i think that it's also fun. It's also fun. If you're into Bitcoin, then you should definitely look at how, how you can, you should definitely start thinking how Bitcoin as a form of sound money, uh, arguably better than uh, the gold standard is going to, uh, what kind of impact it will have on the future economy. Yeah. And how that will affect the inequality. Yeah. I think a big factor will be the massive reduction in the amount of credit and debt based businesses that we will see we'll see yeah. much more equity based businesses we'll see much more people just saving up and then doing a business as opposed to this kind yeah. of cheap credit model that we have seen over the last 30, 40 years but i suppose one challenge that now again I, I you know i agree with you on this but one challenge that we might face if you're talking to somebody who's say 30 or 40 years old there may be a, a guy who's been in and around vc investment software entrepreneurship in their view the last kind of, whatever, 40, 50 years since 1971 and the closure, closure of the gold window, that has historically been an aberration. But a person who is today 30, 40, 50 years old, they might have grown up in that thinking, oh, yeah, that's normal. This is how you just make money. This is how entrepreneurs do things. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that a lot of people, they always talk about, but inflation is necessary, at least like 2 3% of inflation is necessary to... Uh, prop the demand to make sure that the economy is running, everyone has jobs, etc., etc. But I think that a very good argument is that, like, there, we could easily, like, exist and function well as a society, as an economy, in a deflationary environment, because, like, the prices can adjust, and yes, it might not be as popular when you, when you don't get a raise, but, like, in absolute terms, it's it's still the same. It, nothing really changes. It's only that you are able to preserve your wealth into the future and you're not being diluted at all times. And another thing probably is the fact that 
it's it's all about time, the time preference. If people are not incentivized to spend their money today because tomorrow it is worth less, then they're going to be more willing to uh, collect money over time, uh, save up, and make more long-term investments because now they have they simply have more time to think about the pr- and make prudent and wise decisions about their finances, about investment, and like ultimately, I think that is going to have a much a much better sustainable long-term effect on the economy, creating more sustainable jobs, cre- increasing the GDP, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, as opposed to just you going out and buying junk food and things that you don't need just because you know that you have to spend it, you got your salary. And if you don't spend it today in a couple of years, it's not going to be worth as much whatsoever. So in your view then, what's your perspective on future wealth and income distribution in a Bitcoin standard world? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think that it's interesting to think about equality and inequality. I think that absolute equality and especially equality of outcomes is a very populist idea. And it is very difficult to come to terms with the fact that scarcity is a major driving force in the world. Like if everyone could have whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted in abundance, then like what would be the point of working? Like everyone would be demotivated because everyone has everything. But you kind of have to understand that scarcity and competition, they're the most natural thing. And they are there and you just have to live with that. And like also the fact that humans, they also... They always find a way to compete. Like even if you give everyone the equal amount of resources, humans are so ingenious that they will always find a way to form hierarchies, compete, and assert their dominance and prove themselves. So it's kind of like it's st- it comes down to the same thing. So inequality is only natural, and I think that like the most important takeaway with regards to how inequality will look like within true free market or the world where people are using bitcoins is that they will be able to store the product of their labor into the future, which is unfortunately very difficult or outright impossible for some people in the world today. And yeah, like as we said, as I said, like the bottom 90%, they own like very little uh, share of the total stock market. So they simply don't have access to a relatively uh, better uh, form, a relatively better asset that is a relatively better preserving wealth asset such as the real estate or the stocks they just they just don't have access to it which and even it's kind of ridiculous to expect them to be able to operate within that environment because they are they specialize in one thing they they can be whatever a dentist a doctor like why why should they go out of their way and dabble in stock market trading or in real estate investing outside of their actual job that's like that's not the way it's supposed to be like you know just the amount of efficiency that can be achieved by having every single person specialize in one thing and do that thing best as opposed to trying to do five things at once just to be able to uh, preserve their wealth into the future it's just like the efficiency gains that can we can achieve by having sound money that allows people to not worry and sleep well I think are very, very underappreciated. Precisely. And the big point that has in recent decades come up is this whole concept and, you know, people in finance talk about it is this idea of the chase for yield. So they sense that if I leave my money in the bank, I will steadily lose 2 or 3% per year. 
or more. And I need to do something with, about that. And it's pushing everyone into the stock market. And that, as you mentioned, can also be part of the driver for the massive flows into stock markets. Yeah, no, I think that as we uh, as Bitcoin becomes more mature and as this industry, uh, as the infrastructure grows and all that, I think that Bitcoin will not only start uh, biting into uh, like the the wealth that is stored in currency in other currencies in worse currencies in currencies that are worse that are not sound like Bitcoin is. I think it will also take up some of the uh, real estate and stock market as well because a lot of people use these vehicles simply as just uh, wealth preserving assets. They don't like they don't live like like a lot of rich people. They own a lot of apartments just because they know that they will kind of be relatively stable in value throughout time, at least. Well, I mean, they, they are assuming that. Uh, but they don't live in them. So th- once again, that creates a lot of inefficiencies. So I think if you give them a form of money that preserves its wealth, and what's more, very important, like a lot of people, people will be saying, but how does it preserve its wealth? It's so volatile, you can't. But it's, that's, I don't think that's the right way to think about it. Of course, a, uh, a money that is only... 10 years old that is sovereign that is so young and it is open source it takes time for it to become uh to become stable and we have seen that over the past 10 years the volatility rates have been steadily decreasing and this is this is a long-term project this is not an overnight thing and uh it's also really important to think about the fact that the supply like your ratio if you have one bitcoin today you have one out of 21 million and in 10 years time it will still be the same so that is i think a better way to think about it as opposed to looking at the volatility of the price of the short-term price excellent and i like the point you're making about how many of today's wealthy high net worth individuals they will use things like some of these apartments in you know around the world sydney and london and hong kong or wherever vancouver (laughs) yeah exactly and now the the thing that's happening, and we're seeing this a little bit now in Hong Kong, is some of the wealthy individuals in Hong Kong have been looking for ways to move some of their wealth out because of the concerns about China and the extradition laws. So, do you believe that is another driver then for wealthy individuals to now start considering Bitcoin more seriously? Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, it's not wise to really look and try to assign one event or even one property of bitcoin to uh to the reason as the reason like why the price will appreciate or why this will be the reason because it's just so uh interdisciplinary and it it serves so many different things that it's even difficult to uh describe what it really is and it it is able to help out so many different people in so many different ways that yeah, but I think that that's different, definitely uh, part of the value proposition, the fact that it is sovereign, the fact that it is uh, resistant to all kinds of attacks, and it allows you to uh, to be your own, uh, your own boss in terms of who gives you the approval to, uh, do, to do whatever with the, the money that you uh, have the sole ownership and the right of. You know, I think another thing that uh, before we move on away too much from the topic of inequality, uh, uh, another interesting thing is 
how people always talk about like the distribution and uh, like the, the wealth distribution, like in a world where we have Bitcoins, uh, how, how will the wealth distribution really manifest itself? Because like we have people who own a lot of Bitcoins who bought Bitcoins early. I think that's kind of uh, unwise to say like, oh yeah, but these people, these whales, they bought it in 2013. That's unfair. Like that is not unfair because when those people were investing their sums of money into this market, the risks that existed within Bitcoin were much higher than they are today. So they were revol- they were uh, rewarded for taking those risks. And I'm sure like even today I talk to many people and they're like, oh no, this is very risky. I mean, they, they haven't done their research. They don't know anything about it. But like back in the day, they would just laugh at you. Uh, but yeah, but with regards to the inequality, I think that there will ultimately be less inequality, wealth inequality, especially in the long run. Uh, with Bitcoin as opposed to the world today, because like even the whales who own a lot of Bitcoin will sooner or later have to spend uh, spend their their Bitcoins. And unlike in the, today's world, you can't create more of them. So you can't just like arbitrarily redistribute them as you please. In Bitcoin, I think the wealth is redistributed in the most meritocratic way. Whoever works will be paid in Bitcoin. And that way they can save their money over time and not be diluted, which is unprecedented. And I think there's going to have a significant impact, good, uh, positive impact on the world. So look, I mostly agreed with you. And I think one thing that I'm careful about is just to recognize that there will still be inequality. It's just that there will be some that is in a meritocratic way, as you say, that there will be a meritocratic inequality. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can't, like, as I already said, like, Inequality is natural. Like inequality is necessary for the progress of civilization and humanity. But the way you that you come to that inequality is the, the important part. Like with Bitcoin, the way that inequality is achieved is uh, through hard work, is through entrepreneurship. But in the modern world, a lot of the times that this inequality is achieved is not optimal and is outright not fair. Right, it's achieved through graft and politics as opposed to through meritocratic behavior and skillful entrepreneurship or skillful investment, that kind of uh, behavior. So, yeah, interesting stuff. And I think uh, there was another topic I was interested to discuss with you around Bitcoin and morals. So, what's your view there on what kind of system is is Bitcoin going to push people into what you know compared to what we have now? Yeah, so... The way I like to think about and the way I even decided to kind of approach this topic is because I think the beautiful thing about Bitcoin is that, once again, because of how multifaceted it is, it lends itself to a great number of analogies, metaphors, juxtapositions that help people see the benefits of this system. Like we always speak about Bitcoin as all these different things. It is stored energy. Uh, stored time, it is an unconfiscatable asset, borderless money, all these different things. And it is true, it, it is all these different things. And I don't think that, uh, or like then another like cool thing, like the way people, diff- different people describe uh, Bitcoin, for example, like Brandon Quidham calls it like the mycelium. And I, I don't think that this is a coincidence that, that you're able to see uh, Bitcoin through all these different lenses. I think that uh we always talk about 
consensus and we always talk about how we come to a shelling point where we are happy what with what bitcoin is and the way it works but it's kind of hard to difficult to understand what this consensus means and i think a way to look at this is by considering bitcoin as a manifestation of human values basically seeing it as a system of universal morals so to speak like even if you look at it uh through like i don't know the vices in in the sense like if you look at gluttony for example like you it makes you think like of low time preference you, you want to save your bitcoin because it will appreciate in price over time and instead of and you should you should basically sit on it instead of wasting it on junk food and overeating or like sloth you can't be lazy in bitcoin you have to take responsibility you have to own your private keys it's not like in a traditional world where you can just lose your credit card and go to the bank like the cost of doing that is very expensive uh greed greed is probably my most favorite it's my favorite one because it's very interesting because greed is known to corrupt people very often it's a very strong force uh and greed is the reason people steal lie and do other do other reprehensible things but i think that bitcoin has a such a strong appeal uh, because it is able to align with the fundamental human values. And with regards to greed, like how does that make sense? I think that deep down everyone knows that stealing, hurting, and doing all these things is bad, but it's just a, such a such a tempting uh, force because people are, they always want more power, they want to better their lives that they fall uh, prey, they fall victim to uh, to greed and they act upon that. But the most beautiful thing is that Bitcoin is able to um, paradoxically and just so ingeniously use human greed as a way to protect against, uh, against greed itself and protect the social consensus of human values that I just think that Bitcoin encodes... Uh, all these universal values that people from different cultures have agreed upon from time immemorial and it puts them into algorithms that are not prone to uh, as much human uh, human component and that human uh, factor that is so uh, vulnerable and is so uh, so often uh, fails in 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 uh in spite of the best intentions so i think as long as humans are greedy and kind of distrustful of each other or in other words as long as humans are human bitcoin should thrive this is no i mean this is more on the like the just philosophical psychological side of things but i think it's just something to think about like bitcoin aligns with what people around the world most of the time think is right and what is wrong and it's just like you can't like i mean it's very hard like bitcoin makes stealing very difficult bitcoin makes lying very difficult because everything is verified bitcoin minimizes trust so it uses these uh human components that are kind of almost innate to us and it all it programs them into the system that everything functions without having to uh without having to be vulnerable to this human factor once again. Yeah. yeah, look, I think I can think of a couple of practical examples of what you're saying as well. So, the couple, a few obvious ones, 
any current holders of Bitcoin will be very, very highly incentivized to not go for any changes to Bitcoin's 21 million supply cap. So that's the obvious one, right? The most obvious okay. one. And then there's other ones as well, right? So anyone who is a holder of Bitcoin now has some incentive to care about protocol changes. They're going to care about changes that may impact on the ability of uh, their node to, say, verify the full supply of Bitcoin, uh, any changes that may come that might make it easy for other people to steal Bitcoin and ruin the system. And I also liked this concept of the Mexican standoff. I've seen uh, Bitstein tweet this as well. He was saying Bitcoin is like this Mexican standoff because everyone's watching each other because they don't necessarily trust each other. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. I think that once you start learning about Bitcoin, and especially once you start owning some Bitcoin, that changes, that literally reforms you as a human being in terms of your incentives and in terms of your behavior is that you become like a PR agent, but not in the bad sense of this word, but in the most positive sense of this word, that you are uh, you are trying to spread this message. And this message isn't just, you're not just trying to sell something to somebody, but I mean, if they spend enough time, they will realize that you're not trying to sell them something random, but you are actually trying to uh, better their life outcomes and... Uh, hopefully potentially make a world a much fairer place but yeah everyone is incentivized once you ha- you own some you are incentivized to spread the message and educate people which is which is quite beautiful fantastic and i know you were also interested to discuss about some of these ideas around satoshi as a, as the potential single point of failure so tell us a little of your thoughts on that yeah no i think that as time goes on we really re- we really are able to better appreciate everything that Satoshi has done and especially the fact that he disappeared. Perhaps that was the, one of the most important things that he did because that basically enabled him to not uh, be a single, a, not only a physical uh, point of failure, but also not be a, an ideological and directional single point of failure. Like some people, they always say, are, they, they try to argue that Satoshi wanted it this way, or this is his vision, and this is how it's supposed to be. But I think that's, that's a prime example of an appeal to authority. And even if we, for a second, entertain the idea that something is what Satoshi wanted, really wanted, I think it is quite obtuse and perhaps dogmatic, or at least naive, to believe that whatever Satoshi said almost a decade, no, more than a decade ago, uh, was the most optimal implementation of Bitcoin. And like, similarly, it is also kind of narrow-minded to think that throughout all this time, Satoshi himself or herself or the, themselves uh, hasn't changed their mind. Like, it is tr- true that without Satoshi, we all wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be having this conversation today. However, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what Satoshi believed at that point because so many different things have changed. So much time has passed. And um, like the optimal way to go about things always changes and we need to be able to adapt and clinging on to what Satoshi said in a 10-year-old uh, forum post is definitely like people shouldn't put so much emphasis on that because especially a lot of people are going to try to use that to their advantage. And once again, Satoshi is not an all-knowing, omniscient being. They are also a human being. They are not a god. And 
it is therefore unwise to just like blindly follow whatever was said back then because they are basically not infallible uh, like some people say they are and i think there's bitcoin the real bitcoin is whatever the social consensus is not what satoshi said it was or whatever you think satoshi meant it was is the, the shelling point uh that at this point in time it is constantly evolving and becoming more and more anti-fragile and satoshi could not have possibly predicted every single development around bitcoin that has and will change or threaten it during its lifetime so once again like you just need to think through this before you ascribe so much value to these little things you know and i think that we should also consider that satoshi disappeared for more reasons than just to avoid being this physical point of failure to like you know say they said that like they say that like he did that in order to avoid the fate of bitgold or digicash that uh basically had to close down because their creators weren't were not pseudonymous they weren't anonymous i think that he also left to avoid being a single point of failure in the sense of direction that bitcoin takes and i think that was very much uh purposefully done like had not satoshi disappeared his opinion intentionally or unintentionally could have such a large influence that it would it could be counterproductive to bitcoin like i i don't want to pick on any projects or people but like thankfully satoshi spared us of having a vitalik who's like decision making or his mood or whatever whatever this this extrinsic factor that can have such a take such a big toll on the actual project like so bitcoin is so much more than just one person and i think that having a single leading project a single person leading a project even if nominally makes the project a lot more vulnerable and people people like we have to realize that people are they always love people like the average people they love to follow somebody and they like to believe in that one person make a cult out of that person rather than the project itself and no matter how smart that person might be or how great they are like they're still fallible and most importantly like they the human is fallible and the human's nature is corruptible like you know not because a person is good or bad but only because they're human and they are they are they often are exposed to these different things but yeah that's that's that those are the kind of thoughts that i had about about this topic yeah it's interesting the idea around cult of personality because absolutely it's even if somebody was incredibly intelligent some super genius person and they were you know very high upstanding moral person if the government knows who they are they can choose to come after them and take their family right or do something and and then at that point you've got somebody who is now owned right and you know a government or a business could influence protocol decisions around bitcoin and that you know could have led to all sorts of uh kind of negative pathways and many of these negative pathways in some of the shit coins they just may never actually happen because here it's that whole problem of you know the warren buffett saying you only see uh, you only realize who's swimming naked when the tide goes out <laughs> right yeah so many of these shit coins will never get to the point where 
you know, a government needs to go and kind of co-opt the leader of it. But it's kind of prudent in that Bitcoin doesn't have that person. Yeah, no, absolutely. I feel like these people who use Satoshi's name or like they try to ascribe so much value to it, it's just like these methods, they are often just so dishonest, and, but yet effective. They, they're effective with some people in order to like defend your righteousness and it enables one to like easily dodge difficult questions by simply replying, oh, Satoshi said so. Yeah, there must be like, are you trying to, are you questioning Satoshi? You think you're smarter than Satoshi? No, I'm not, but I just don't want to fall prey to, once again, this appeal to one person. And like, I think that the important takeaway is like, do not make idols provided enough time you will be disappointed in them. And once again, not because they're necessarily bad or good, but because everything constantly changes. And I think the quote uh, that goes, you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain is especially relevant. Like Satoshi probably must have been aware of, of this. Of this <laughs> well, one. I think was it, that was in The Dark Knight from I think around 2007 or 2008. So it was around yeah. that time. oh yeah good good one good one yeah you should no i think it's it's just fascinating and we are we are so lucky to be here at this time in this place so early once again people a lot of people say that oh yeah i've missed the train i missed the boat uh and it's too far gone now there's no point like the price is too high and they are just unfortunately they are incapable of just just trying to even daring to imagine how big this can be and the fact that the total addressable market is so big and this i think i think we're just very early and it's every everybody's it's worth everybody's time to learn about it uh and at least do their own research yeah that's a, that's a definitely a, a big point as well many people when they are new to bitcoin they think oh, i'm late and then even you listen to stories of people who have been around and they got in at like 2012 or 2013 and they feel like they they, they themselves were late they were late <laughs> yeah no everything is relative yeah no i'm just saying that everything is relative and there are there will be people who will be coming later and they will be saying the same things there will be people who i i think there will be people who will be buying at 50k and they will be and they're right now saying it's too expensive, but the FOMO will pour in. And I mean, that's just that's just how humans work. They they don't want to like. Although they say everyone thinks that you should, everyone claims that they they buy low and sell high, but it's always the other way around. And it's all cyclical, so we just have these cycles, and we just need to embrace that. So, Mister, tell us a little bit about what you're working on at the moment and what you're thinking about. You know, have you got any ideas for article, articles coming up or research? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's always in the back of my mind. Uh, like, there's no no date that I spend not thinking about Bitcoin and or not uh, listening to podcasts such as your own, <laughs> which once again I think is a is a great resource that everyone should uh, take advantage of uh, if they're not doing so already. But yeah, I'm all, I'm always on the lookout for uh, new ideas, always brainstorming and trying to find. I think one thing that I'm really passionate about is trying to optimize uh, the way uh, to onboard people into uh, this space and to uh, the, to find the most effective, the most succinct 
way to uh, communicate the value proposition of Bitcoin to them without them losing the interest within uh, within the first five minutes because it's such a such a dense yet such a fascinating space. So yeah, I think we always need to be thinking of find of finding those most optimal and most accessible ways of um, bringing in more people and not necessarily uh, alienating them. Although some people deserve to be alienated, they're like scammers or whatnot. But I think a lot of people are willing to listen. It's just that you have to find the right approach and not to and not be too demanding in the beginning. I think that's 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 what was always on my mind. Yeah, so it's interesting because many of the early people were cypherpunks, and then the next wave was libertarian people. And so obviously, people like you and me come from a more libertarian Austrian angle. So it's quite easy for us to kind of Absolutely. see the value. Yeah. Uh, but I think a, a good example is someone like Alex Gladstein, who himself, he's not a libertarian, right? He's more of a progressive. He's, you know, and mm-hmm. he is able to mm-hmm. sell it to other progressives because he can speak to them in a way that's a little bit more, it resonates more with them. Do you have any thoughts on that? And that yeah, and that's the most beautiful thing about Bitcoin. I, I always keep saying that Bitcoin is so interdisciplinary that you can talk about it in a plethora of ways to all kinds of people and there will always be something about bitcoin that will appeal to them exactly that kind of person like it doesn't matter what their political stand is it doesn't matter what their religion is what what anything what their color is all of those things don't matter there are things that are able to about bitcoin that can literally better their lives in various ways that they want to hear about that they are willing to listen uh, uh listen to you talk about and it's just about finding that right approach like when when you i feel like when you uh when you're about to tell the story of bitcoin to some person you should really consider their background uh what they like what they don't like what they do in life what their what their interests are and then kind of try to this is not about being facetious or trying to sell something it's about just considering how bitcoin can help them because i am almost sure that there are there is a way that Bitcoin can help all different kinds of people. So that, that, that is very important, I, I believe. Before you try to, like, I don't know, shout at them and tell, you have to read Human Action, <laughs> you didn't read the thousand pages, don't talk to me yet. Like, I, I, I mean, I, I love the book and I really, really identify with the Austrian school, but we, we are taking this thing mainstream and we can't expect all these people to, you know, like do all these things that we have done and that we see value in. We, we just need to uh, optimize for these people to just get on the boat, get on the same boat as us and really see the, the main stuff. Because like, once again, we live in such a world where uh, time, uh, the, the attention spans are so small. People are always interested in different things, but we, we need to get them on board. And if we are going to take this mainstream, we, we shouldn't be too harsh on them, you know? Like, we should, we should sometimes give them a break, but we should uh, we should optimize for them not being too alienated. I know it's very important for for us to uh, keep to our standards and our um, uh, the, the 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 certain important things that can never change. For example, the twenty one million, like these things. Yes, of course, I understand that the real bitcoiners will always fight against all the scammers that try to sell them their shitcoin or. Uh, try to change some parameter of Bitcoin, which is not going to fly. But just some people who are 
who are willing to listen. I think that we, we if we if we're take, taking this mainstream, we should consider what they care about, who they are, and then kind of accommodate them in that sense. You know, look, I think it's part of it is just meet them. You you have to meet people where they're at. That's probably the way I would summarize yeah. it. Yeah. So yeah, look, uh, Mister, I think that's pretty much it in terms of uh, topics we had for discussion. Uh, do you have any? Just for the listeners, tell them where they can find you and uh, where they can keep up with what you're doing. Yeah, no, I think the best place that they can find me and contact me is on Twitter at Misir underscore uh, Mahmudov, M-I-S-I-R underscore M-A-H-M-U-D-O-V. And my DMs are open. And I'm I'm gladly uh, uh, reading them and replying to people. So you can always ask me stuff. So yeah. Once again, thank you so much for inviting me. This was a this was so much fun and a, once again a great honor to be in the same list with the people who are doing God's work and I I'm a, I'm a huge fan of your podcast. Awesome. Thanks again for coming on the show and I'll speak to you soon. Thank you Stefan. See ya. All right guys, I hope you enjoyed that discussion with Monsieur uh, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast by going to stefanlevera.com. On there, you can see a link for an Android or iTunes or RSS sign-up. Make sure you're subscribed in a podcast app. Makes it much easier to just get the episodes as they come out. Uh, also note, I'll be in San Francisco for Bitcoin 2019. So the conference is on there. Uh, that's uh, the main time that I'll be in the USA this year. So if you're a listener and you're coming along, make sure you give me a DM. Let's meet up. I'll be around that week, so I'll be flying in on Sunday the 23rd and flying out Friday the 28th. So if you're keen to meet up, just give me a message. Uh, And lastly, if you are interested to advertise on the podcast, make sure you give me an email. StefanLevera at pm.me is my email. Thanks for all the help you guys give me with sharing the podcast as well. I see that on Twitter, so thanks very much for that, and I will speak to you guys soon.